and let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to a topic that is underpreached, undervalued, but is something that burdens your heart, we pray that you'd give us ears to listen to what you have to say, the grace to accept it, and the power to let it change our lives. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. <clears throat> I've done a fair number of funerals, and back at Heritage, a woman walked in, and she was a sort of a wealthy financial consultant in a business with her husband, and she was somewhat radiant, and she came to church for uh, a few weeks, and she wasn't sure where she stood with the Lord, but one Sunday she decided, this will be my last Sunday at Heritage Bible Chapel, because the people here are kind of holy, they have their act together, and uh, she said, I, I don't believe that I belong. Well, by choice, by God's choice, that Sunday we had this thing called cardboard testimonies. You may have heard of them. They came out of the South. We had a number of people whose lives were changing, and we just couldn't get time to give testimonies. So we used these cardboard testimonies, and on one side of the cardboard was your old life in two or three words, and then flip over, and there was your new life. And I might have told some of you this before. And so we had those cardboard testimonies that Sunday, and this woman had decided that that was going to be her last Sunday at that church because she wasn't good enough to be there. And the first woman up there on one side of her cardboard said, three children, no idea who their father is, cocaine. And then flipped it over, and they could see all she was in Christ. And she was actually one of the deacon's wives. And maybe 30 people went across the stage. And by the time they were there, I was weeping, but I think I was the last one to weep. But it was that powerful to see these changed lives. So this woman decided, I can stay here because these people are like me. So Joan and I began to disciple her and her husband, and she was radiant. But then she went for a medical, and she was told that she uh, had a, a lump that could be malignant, could be benign. And she told the doctor, she said, well, it really doesn't make any difference if I'm cured, I get to stay with my family, and if I'm not, I go to be with my Lord. That was the faith of this woman who had just come to Christ. <clears throat> she got a lot worse in a hurry. She just became a shell with a bandana on constantly, and she called me, and she said, will you come and help me plan my funeral, which happened maybe two or three weeks later. She was radiant. It was like we were planning a picnic or something. She he had all of these ideas, and she just wanted to make sure that the gospel was preached. She said, would you have an altar call? I said, well, I'm not Baptist, but she said, please have an altar call. <clears throat> so she died in the funeral. Uh, the church was suited for 700 people. They tell us that we had over 900 people. I could preach very powerfully about the life she had and the joy she had, and afterward, I don't know how many people came forward. But I got a call from her sister in upstate New York, and she said, the next day, she said, I've given my life to Christ based on what I've seen. And another sister called a couple of days later from Vermont, and she said, I have not been walking with the Lord. But she said, I am now. So we have this joyful and powerful event because we knew where our sister was. She was with the Lord. But I've also done a lot of funerals where I had no idea where the people were. And one of the things that would discourage me is that 
there were people that I didn't know very well or people that heard of our church and said, would you, would you come and do the funeral for my, for my husband? And I said, well, I need to know where he was spiritually. And uh, they would say very often, well, he invited Jesus into his heart when he was a boy, but he's never really walked with the Lord. And to me, that was not a very good evidence that that person really knew the Lord. And I was reluctant to stand up and say, he's in a better place, knowing that all of his friends could be there and not know what I'm talking about. So what I used to do, I used to say, I'm going to tell you this morning something that I know that this departed person wants you to hear. And I knew that whether he's in hell or heaven, that would be the message that they would want to hear. Because whether they are in heaven or hell, that message is the same, that Jesus Christ is the answer. In fact, that's why in the story of the rich man and Lazarus that we're going to look at this morning, the rich man in hell, what does he do? He says to Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers. So there's a proof there that even in hell, people are conscious of where they could have gone, and they wanted Lazarus to go back and tell a message, don't come here because I have come here. Now, last week, we looked at, in Romans 1, we saw that every Christian is in debt. We owe everybody. We owe everybody the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also saw from Romans 1 that we have to be ready to pay that debt. We have to be willing to go to our world, to mobilize and take the gospel to our world. And then we saw that we are never to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power, the dunamis power of God. Joan and I have been blessed in our ministry. <clears throat> and if you ask me what really thrills us, what was the most powerful thing in our ministry, I'd say it will transform lives or the change we've seen in us or in our children. But I would say that the most powerful thing that we have ever seen is the power of the gospel unleashed in lives that you'd never think would come to Christ. Last week, we also looked briefly at Acts 1-8, and I'd like us to start there if we could again this morning for just a moment. <clears throat> Pardon me, listen to the Lord's final words to his church just before he ascends. Acts 1-8, he said, final message before he ascended, but you will receive power, dunamis, dynamite. That's where the word dynamite comes from. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall not some of you, not some of the time, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And we saw last week that that, Acts 1-8, is a command for every Christian. We may have different gifts, we may have different ministries, we may have different mission fields, <clears throat> but there is no such thing as a Christian who is not a witness. The Lord says we shall be his witnesses on earth. No matter how much we stay silent in our neighborhoods, no matter how much we fail the Lord as believers or serve him, we are his witnesses. He has no other plan. Now you may ask, well, what about the churches in conflict with a lack of unity? They are my witnesses. A poor witness, but that's who I'm using. What about that Christian kid in a very hostile school environment? They are my witnesses. They can choose to be silent. They can choose to win people to Christ, but they are my witnesses. What about the Christians who are not willing 
to talk about heaven and hell. They are my witnesses. They're just not obeying my commands. <clears throat> so I would say at that point, Lord, do you have plan B? Because sometimes this doesn't appear to be working. And the Lord would reply, I have no other plan. We're it. We are it. Now, <clears throat> let's look at John 16, 8 again. We looked at that last week, which to me was a life-changing verse. And the Lord is speaking of the Holy Spirit, and here's what he says. <clears throat> Pardon me. And he, when he comes, will convict the world of three things. Sin and righteousness, and judgment. Now remember, the Holy Spirit's living inside us, and he's been poured out on all the earth, and that's what he's doing. He is convicting the world of those three things, sin, and righteousness, and judgment. That is our sin, the righteousness of Christ on the cross, and judgment for those who do not come to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing out there. So we could assume from that and conclude that if that is what the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of, that's got to be our message. What I tell the world has got to be consistent with what the world is telling, what the Holy Spirit is telling the world. I've got to tell them that they have sinned, Christ is the answer, and you're going to go to hell if you don't come to Christ. I would say it more graciously than that, but that's essentially it. The Pew Research Center did a study that revealed that more people believe in heaven than hell. So we would ask, well, they're both in the Bible. They're both mentioned. Probably hell's mentioned a bit more indirectly than even heaven is. So why would more people believe in heaven and hell? When I traveled to London, I went to the war games rooms and where Winston Churchill conducted the Second World War, and I had tremendous respect for him. He was asked, why is Britain becoming increasingly moral? And he said, because heaven and hell are no longer preached in the land. That was his answer for Britain. I also mentioned last week that in our Bibles, the word wrath is found twice as much as mercy. But we seldom hear and talk about the wrath of God. And I find it very, very uncomfortable to do that. When we were living in St. Louis, we had lived in Iowa, and I would go back from time to time and preach there. And the pastor called and said, would you come back? And I said, yes. He said, what do you want to preach on? We're going to put it in the newspaper because people there knew us in Marshalltown, and, and uh, it wasn't a big city, really. <clears throat> I said, well, I really feel convicted to talk about the rich man and Lazarus. And he had a summer missionary there who was from Europe, and she was a wonderful Christian, but she didn't do English quite the same as us. So the pastor called me back, and he said, well, we got it in the newspaper. And uh, he said, here's what your title is. Eric Hartland is coming back to town, and he's going to preach on hell's eternal fire of judgment. And I'm thinking, you got to be, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, that, that's what she's putting in there. That's what you're preaching on. <clears throat> so I went there, and uh, I preached, and I got through it unscathed, and we went back to St. Louis, and then about six months later, he said, we want you to come back. Would you do another message? And when we came back, I was walking into the sanctuary from the pastor's office, and the man touched my arm. <clears throat> and he said, sir, uh, I was suicidal some months ago. My wife had just delivered divorce papers to me. And he said, uh, I was reading the paper, and I saw that you were coming to town. And he said, I thought I'd better check that out before I pulled the trigger. He said, I came. I gave my life to Christ. 
I went back to my wife. She gave her life to Christ, and I'd like you to meet her. And I, I was ashamed to think that I was ashamed of the gospel. And I saw its power like never before. So with that background, I'd like us to turn to Luke chapter 16. And this morning, I'd like us to take a look at this thing called eternity. Now, if we're going to talk about eternity, we need to know kind of what the Bible says about eternity. And here's what the Bible says, essentially. <clears throat> it says that every person here in this sanctuary, every person at Barry, every person on this planet will spend eternity in one of two places. There is no other option, heaven or hell. Now, in Luke 16, the Lord is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going there to go to the cross, and the crowds are following him, and he heals the blind, and he raises this man, Lazarus, from the dead, and he talks of his coming kingdom. And on this journey, twice in Luke chapter 13, twice he repeats this, unless you repent, you perish. Unless you turn from your sin, you will perish eternally. And then in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, in the story of the rich man and beggar, the Lord pulls back the curtain and he shows us eternity. And in this passage, the Lord gives us four lessons on eternity that I believe we need to really hear. <clears throat> you see, this, this rich man learned a lot the moment he died. And in his story, the Lord gives us some critical lessons here about eternity. But first, let's meet this rich man and this beggar named Lazarus. We'll start with Luke 16, 19 to 22. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. So the rich man had it all. He was abundantly rich. Purple was the dye from a very rare sea mussel, and it was sold to the kings and the super wealthy. You remember in Acts 16, Lydia was a seller of purple. That's why she probably had a house big enough to have church in, because that would be a, she would be in the palaces of kings to be able to sell that. It was such an important thing. Fine linen here was a linen that was so light it was called then woven air and was born habitually only by the wealthy. And notice, <clears throat> pardon me, verse 19, the rich man joyously lived in splendor. Meanwhile, in verse 20, in stunning contrast, we see Lazarus here. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid, which in the Greek means he was cast like poured out of a wheelbarrow and dumped at his gate, covered with sores from malnutrition and filth. Verse 21, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And longing, their apothumio, means he was craving. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. You see, when the rich people ate, they used breadcrumbs. They didn't have napkins. They had grease on their hands, and they used dried breadcrumbs that were dried out for that purpose, and then they would just wipe them off on the floor. And then after they did that, they were swept away and thrown out. And that is exactly what Lazarus is longing for. But also notice when, <clears throat> when the crumbs were thrown out, Lazarus had to fight dogs for the crumbs. And when the dogs licked his sores, it was not only painful... It was also shameful because dogs were considered to be very low forms of animal. So in the rich man and Lazarus, we see these extreme contrasts of society. And then we come to the death of both men, verse 22. 
Now the poor man died, <clears throat> pardon me, and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's how the Jews described heaven, being in the bosom of Abraham. As a matter of fact, in chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 11, the Lord describes heaven as the, for the Jews as dining with Abraham. <clears throat> then verse 22, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now notice Lazarus had no funeral, but the rich man here is buried. Buried in the Greek means a celebration with funeral rites. That means he had paid mourners. He would have music. He would have dancing. He would have lots of food and an expensive tomb. But then in the events that followed after the death of these two men, the Lord teaches us four very powerful lessons about eternity. And as we come to verses 23 to 25, here is lesson number one, a lesson that our world needs to hear. <clears throat> Heaven and hell are real. Verse 23, <clears throat> in Hades, that's hell in King James, he lifted up his eyes, stop there for a moment, and notice the rich man here is conscious. He's in hell. He's conscious. His body is dead, but his soul is alive. Remember, it's the Lord here talking, and he's telling us death is not the end of existence. It is the beginning of eternity. But for the rich man, there was a huge difference between his life on earth and his life in eternity. Look at verse 23. In Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, agony, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. You see, for a Jew, being in the bosom of Abraham was considered to be the place of highest honor in heaven. But that's not where the rich man was. The rich man was in torment. Verse 24, And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. There's a picture of hell that we may not like, but it's real. Agony in flame. Verse 25, <clears throat> But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. <clears throat> Sometimes I have heard people often refer to hell on earth. They would refer to a situation for them which was hell on earth. That's not true. Nothing here compares to hell. When we were in uh, Massachusetts, <clears throat> we watched our health care costs explode on what they call the mental and nervous side, not the physical side. <clears throat> so we, we hired a firm, it was called an employee assistance plan, and they would send in a consultant and he would go through the factory and he would find out who was struggling with anxiety, depression, broken marriages, all kinds of disorders, and then he would refer them to counselors that we would be paying for, and I was not allowed to know the individual that they talked to because that would be a breach of confidence. So what I would get at the end of the month was a list of how many people were being treated for different things. And the list was, was pretty long. Well, this guy that was running the EAP for us came into my office and he said, could we go to lunch? And I said, yes. So we went to lunch and I remember sitting at the riverside outside of a restaurant. He turned to me and he said, I'm going to commit suicide. And I'm thinking, we're paying you to go into our factory to help people. 
<clears throat> he, said, I, he said, I have decided. I'm not coming to tell you what you think. He said, he told me what his life was like, and he said, nothing could be as bad as this. And I had to tell him, if you die without Christ, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you think this is bad, then you die without Christ, you're going to find out what hell is. He didn't commit suicide. <clears throat> and then we left town. We don't know what happened. But Listen to how the Lord describes hell in the New Testament. He describes it as a place of utter darkness, the gnashing of teeth, weeping, an unquenchable fire, and destruction. Bottom line, if I as a preacher and you as believers do not communicate the reality of hell as the Lord leads, then we are failing Acts 20, 27, that says that we are to proclaim the whole truth of God, the sin, the righteousness, and the judgment. Now, this raises an obvious question. <clears throat> Pardon me. We hear it often. <clears throat> How could a loving God send anyone to hell? When we lived in Sarnia, I guess Jana was about two and Laura was four at that time and Leslie was not thought of at that time. And there was a woman named Mrs. Wright that would walk her dog, an older woman, she'd walk her dog. And then one day she was walking and Laura, the little ambassador, hollered out, lady, bring your dogger over here and I'll pat him for you. So the woman came over, the kids patted the dog, we fell in love with Mrs. Wright. We befriended her. She came to our house. I don't know whether you remember this. I think you might. Came to our house at least once a week, and we kind of cared for her. And we shared the gospel with her. <clears throat> then one Sunday, she went to another church. Then one Sunday, she came from her church, and she was so excited. She said, the sermon this morning was this topic. God is too loving to send anyone to hell. And at that moment, she shut down spiritually to us. We kept a relationship with her, but she didn't want to talk about that anymore because her pastor told her that God was too loving to send anyone to hell. She believed a lie that denies the character of God. You see, when someone says, the God I worship would never send anyone to hell, they're embracing a loving God, but not a holy God. Here's the straight truth from the Word of God. God's love promises heaven to those who come to him. God's holiness forbids heaven to those who don't. So the real question is not, why would the Lord send someone to hell? The real question, why would anyone reject his offer of heaven? Think about this. How can someone say, I will not follow Jesus Christ, but I expect that I would be able to go to heaven. How can someone say, I will not surrender my life to Jesus Christ and then blame him for the eternal consequences? <clears throat> Listen to the Lord again, Luke 13. Unless you repent, you'll perish. That is the missing message in evangelism. It must be told with a tender heart and tearful eyes and never judgmental, but it must be told. And that's the first lesson the Lord gives us on eternity. Heaven and hell are real. <clears throat> then in verse 26, we see our second lesson on eternity. <clears throat> our eternal destiny is sealed, <clears throat> pardon me, the moment we die. 
verse 26. And besides all this, remember the Lord is speaking. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none will be able to cross over from there to us. Now consider the power of this statement. The Lord is saying there is a great chasm between heaven and hell. Once we die, our eternal destination is forever sealed, and the only time you can change your eternal address is now. Four times in the book of Hebrews, God tells us today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Now, why is that? so important. Why must we come today? Well, look at verse 26 again. Abraham says to the rich man, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. That is our second lesson on eternity. Our eternal destiny is sealed the moment we die. Then as we come to verse 27 and 28, we see our third lesson on eternity. Here's lesson number three. In hell, everything is lost. Verse 27, and he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Notice the rich man is still thinking of the social order of this life. Verse 24, he he wants, even from hell, he wants Lazarus to bring him water. Verse 27, he wants Lazarus to be sent to his brothers. He doesn't realize that things are so different in eternity. On earth, the rich man was well known. He was influential. But in hell, everything he was, everything he had, everything he loved is lost. In fact, notice here that in eternity, it's the beggar Lazarus who's named by God. The rich man is not even named. You see, for Lazarus, the cries of starvation have become shouts of joy and praise. The crumbs that he longed for and fought the dogs for are replaced by the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. But for the rich man who worshiped money instead of God, His home, his wealth, his clothing, his music, his parties are gone. Everything changes when you and I walk through the gates of death. In heaven, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and we will reign with Christ forever. But for the rich man, everything was lost. That is the third lesson here about eternity. In hell, everything is lost. And also in verse 27 and 28, we see the Lord's last lesson for us here in eternity. <clears throat> the evidence for eternity is undeniable. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. <clears throat> Pardon me, he still sees Lazarus as insignificant. Verse 28, For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. So it's obvious that people are knowledgeable and aware after they leave this earth if they are in hell. Then finally, as we come to verses 29 to 31, we see Abraham tell the rich man they already have that evidence. Look at verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They're saying, 
They have the word of God. Let them hear it. Verse 30. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's saying if his brothers were to see Lazarus raised from the dead, they will believe. Verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, the word of God, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see what the Lord is saying here? He's saying the problem is never the lack of evidence that hell is real. The problem is a refusal to believe. The Lord is telling us if someone does not want to believe, the evidence won't matter. The truth will not matter. You probably know the story of the other Lazarus in the Gospels. Listen to what the crowd did when the Lord raised him from the dead. This, to me, shows the heart of man as much as anything in the Bible. He just raises Lazarus from the dead. He smells bad. He's wrapped up. He's obviously been dead for a number of days, and he walks out of the tomb. <clears throat> John eleven forty five. Here's the response. Many believed, but some ran and told the Pharisees. They saw this dead man coming out and coming alive, even though he smelled bad. For four days he was dead, verifiably dead, but some ran and told the Pharisees. Now listen to John 12. A great crowd is gathered to see Jesus and Lazarus, the man he just raised from the dead. And guess what the chief priest did? John 12:10. It says they plotted to kill him again. I mean, how much evidence do you need? You see, when you decide not to believe, evidence doesn't matter. Weeks after I came to Christ, I had a guy that I played hockey with. He worked there. We were pretty close friends, and I was telling him about Joan and I coming to Christ. <clears throat> I shared the gospel with him. He said, well, he said, the way I got it figured is that when I die, after I die, it's kind of going to be like everybody I liked I'm going to be with, and the ones I didn't like I'm not going to be with, and all the things that made me happy are going to be there, and all the things that make me sad. And I'm thinking, John, have you heard anything I said? I said, why do you believe that? I don't know. I just do. And so he never came to Christ. Now, you know where the Lord was when he told the story of Lazarus and the rich man? He was on the road to Jerusalem to die and rise again. Look at verse 31 one more time. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So it's true. The problem with eternity is never a lack of evidence. It's a lack of belief. Why? Because the evidence for eternity is undeniable. So the Lord is telling us here that heaven and hell are real. Our eternal destiny is sealed the moment we die irreversibly <clears throat> in hell. Everything is lost. And he's telling us that the evidence for eternity is undeniable. <clears throat> but it's also clear what the Lord is saying to you and I. Acts 1.8. We shall be his witnesses in our workplace, our schools, our neighborhoods, our city, and our country. And the starting point is loving God and loving our neighbor. I might have mentioned last week that I came home one day and Joan was weeping uncontrollably because she fell in love with a woman who was an alcoholic on drugs and lived behind us in the cul-de-sac. There was no reason at all for her to do that. She wept for that woman. That woman came to Christ. 
her son came to Christ. And from that time, maybe a dozen people came to the Lord through her weeping. She loved God, so she loved her neighbor. If we can't weep over our neighbors, we can't win our neighbors. There's got to be that burden that drives us to pray for them. If we don't pray a lot for our neighbors, we probably won't say a lot to our neighbors. Here's what I truly believe from the Word of God. <clears throat> I believe the sins of the world don't hurt the church as much as the sins of the church hurt the world. The sins of the world against me make me stronger. But a sin of silence can cost somebody, except for God's sovereign decree, eternal life. I believe the sins of the world don't hurt the church as much as the sins of the church hurt the world. And one of the greatest sins of the church in North America is silence. I read a true story of five little boys, seven or eight years old, who were going to be shot and burned in the fire <clears throat> for their faith. And this one little boy, it's a true story verified by missionaries. This one little boy, as they were just starting the fires, they were going to plant them in the fire, he said, sir, I have a request. <clears throat> because they were also, I won't even tell you what else they were doing. He said, would you leave my arms like they are? I will go to the fire gladly, but I want to die praising the Lord. And he wanted to have arms that he could raise and praise the Lord. So just as Peter and John, when they were told in Acts 4, speak no more in this name, we need to make a commitment as the body of Christ to give Peter's answer. We cannot help but preach and teach the things which we have seen and heard. I'll close with this. In 1984, we were preparing to move to the U.S., and the furniture was out of the house, and a certain eight-year-old who's here this morning, she's a little older than that now, <clears throat> she was our middle daughter, and she was praying for her teacher, Mr. Sales, and she loved this man. She would come home, and she just loved Mr. Sales. She prayed, prayed, prayed for him. She didn't want him to go to hell. <clears throat> but we were being transferred to the U.S., and he hadn't come to the Lord. But as the furniture was being drained out of the house, and I was sitting in a chair in the living room kind of guiding traffic, Mr. Sales, that teacher, knocked on the door, and he came in. And he said, I need to talk to you. I said, about what? He said, well, your daughter Janet's been talking to me about Jesus. I said, why have you saved that to this day to come as the van is about to leave? Well, I figured if things didn't go well here, you'd be leaving the country, and I wouldn't have to live with it. He prayed, and he gave his life to Christ, and his wife gave her life to Christ. And I saw him last year in Woodstock, and they're still walking with the Lord. And the starting point, a burden that God gives us for the lost. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> I think that story is the richest, toughest, most wonderful, scariest, convicting, comforting story that our Lord Jesus Christ told. And, Father, he told it as he was marching to the cross. And that story has won 
perhaps the millions of people to Christ in the last 2,000 years. Father, I pray that we individually, like Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin when they said, preach no more in this name, and they replied, we cannot help but preach and teach the things which we have seen. Father, fill us with a broken heart for the lost in this community. Fill this church, Father, with people that are seeking truth. They will find it here. I pray that you'd bless this church and grow it. And I pray, Father, that for every one of us, when we stand before you, you'd be able to say, <clears throat> well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we will give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.